Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Kaerna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 1st of July 2022. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID-19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month you'll get to hear Dr Ian Astroglob Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide, an astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers and astrophotographers. And he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. Great to be talking with you again, Ian. So can you tell us, mate, what's up in the sky for the month of July? Well, Brendan, most of the same things are up in the sky for July as they were in June, although we'll be having some more interesting positioning of the moon and the planets. And, of course, this year, this month, we have a nice perigee syzygy moon. So as for the previous months, most of the actions in the morning skies. We start off in the first week with five bright planets delighting us. And then after that, we lose Mercury and it's only four bright planets. So you still have to be up early to enjoy it. As usual, I'll start off with the moon. So July the 7th is the first quarter moon. So between the beginning of the month and July the 7th, you've got plenty of time to see lots of pretties in the sky. July the 14th is our full moon, which is a perigee syzygy moon, as we just mentioned. July, uh, around, of course, around the, the uh, full moon, most of the pretties are washed out. On July the 21st, it's the last quarter moon, and July the 29th is the new moon. So by the end of the month, we're back to have, being able to observe the, the faint fuzzies and the, uh, and the clusters really easily. The moon, of course, is at perigee on July the 13th, just immediately before the full moon. I'll discuss that in a moment. And apogee is on July the 26th, when it's further, the moon is furthest from the Earth. So we'll start with the evening sky first. So Saturn's climbing higher in the evening sky, although it's still visible in the morning skies for the, the rest of the month, but getting lower and lower in the west. As Saturn climbs higher in the east, it's sufficiently high in the sky to be easily seen, but it's not still really high enough for telescopic observation until later in the month. Now, Saturn starts off forming a shallow triangle, Gamma and Delta Capricornii, 
uh, two of the bright stars in the constellation of Capricorn. And as the month goes on, it goes from being this shallow triangle to nearly an equilateral triangle, and it's best in the equilateral triangle form from between the 25th to the 30th. Uh, Saturn is getting uh, brighter, although it's not really noticeably brighter, because it's at opposition next month. So if you're willing to stay up quite late or in the early morning to take uh, telescopic images of Saturn, that'll be good. But next month would be best. So on the 15th and the morning of the 16th, the waning moon's close to Saturn, but it's not particularly spectacularly close. It's just you know, the, the nearest bright thing to the moon will be, will be Saturn on the 15th and the morning of the 16th. Now, Mercury returns to the evening sky later this month, but I do mean later. It's low in the twilight, half an hour after sunset in the last week of the month, and not really very visible. But on July the 30th, we have the nice view of the thin crescent moon, Mercury, close in the twilight. So if you've got a nice flat horizon, like an ocean or the desert, this will be very good for viewing the thin crescent moon and Mercury. It'll be very nice indeed. So let's go back to the morning. Again, most of the planets are in the morning, so that's where most of the action is, although it's very sort of low-speed action. Mercury, of course, is rapidly sinking towards the horizon, and it's really only visible for the first week and then really only for the first half of the first week. Venus starts the month close to Alabara. It's forming a second eye for Taurus the bull, so it looks quite spectacular at the moment. Venus draws away from... Aldebaran in the high 80s and continues to sink towards the horizon, but it's still readily visible from nautical twilight until dawn for the rest of the month. Yep. And on the 26th, Venus and the thin crescent moon are close. It'd be a very nice thing to look at later in the month. Of course, Earth is at, at, at helium when it's furthest from the sun on the 4th. Uh, we won't notice very much from this, uh, but if you uh, had a telescope, and you're assiduously photographing the sun through your telescope using safe solar observing techniques, you would notice that the uh, sun is smaller than it would have been back in February when it was closest to the Earth. Now, Mars is uh, above Venus, becoming brighter as it nears opposition, although opposition is much later in the year. But it's in an area devoid of stars, so reddish Mars is readily identifiable as the only really bright object in an area otherwise devoid of stars above Venus and below Jupiter, which is also readily identifiable. Yep. On July the 2nd, Mars is only three degrees from the crescent moon. It's about three finger widths, and the pair are easily seen together in binoculars and will look very nice. And on the 31st, Mars and Uranus are three degrees apart. If you missed the close of Venus and Uranus uh, in June and the Moon and Uranus in June, this is another opportunity to see the faint outer planet close to a readily, a readily observable object to make it identifying easier. You can see Mars and Uranus coming together, uh, together uh, for this. Unlike the Venus-Uranus close approach, uh, Mars is quite high in the morning sky, so it would be relatively easy to see both of them above trees and other objects. However, uh, while Mars and Uranus are three degrees apart on the 31st, 
they're closest on the 1st of August when they're only about one degree apart. Yep. So it should be part of your observing campaign to watch Mars and Uranus get closer and closer together over the end of June and then have the spectacular closeness the following uh, month. Very good. Now, bright will be very good. And, and bright Jupiter, bright Jupiter is readily observable. It's high in the morning sky and climbing higher. Uh, it's an excellent telescopic object if you are, of course, getting up that early. And, of course, if the clouds are going to be cooperating. And on the 18th, Jupiter is close to the waning moon. So if you have any hesitation about understanding which bright object is Jupiter, uh, on the 18th, Jupiter is the bright object close to the waning moon. Keep the position in mind. You'll be able to identify it in the coming weeks. So just to go through the ladder of the moon again, on the 15th, the waning moon is close to Saturn. The 19th, the waning moon is close to Jupiter. The 23rd, waning moon is close to Mars. And on the 26th, the thin crescent moon is just above Venus. And then... On the 30th in the evening, the moon is close to Mercury, as I said before. So you've got a, a, the end of the month has nice series of uh, close approaches of the moon and bright planets. Excellent. And uh, of course, as I said before, we've got a perigee syzygy moon on the 14th. This is the best of the perigee syzygy moons this year. Uh, but of course, to actually really get the feel for it, you have to compare it with the December 8th Apogee Moon. Uh, you won't see much of a difference if you compare it with your memory of the last month's full moon because that was also a perigee moon, though not as good as this one. So either to have to remember the Apogee Moon from last year or wait for the Apogee Moon of December 8th this year in order to really feel the size contrast. Yep. Now, perigee is actually on at 7pm on the 13th and official full moon uh, is at 5 a.m. on the next uh, on the morning of the of the fourteenth. Now we, we like to think of the full moon as going the entire night, but technically, the full moon is exactly the moment when the moon is fully illuminated. And so this is at 5 a.m. So if you want to see the fully illuminated moon at its very best, uh, closest to Earth, then uh, you'll have to be up around about 5 a.m. Yep. Of course, this is also best for astrophotography. I make it a habit of photographing both the perigee, syzygy and the apogee moons um, so, and putting them together for size comparisons. And, it, uh, and through, through a telescope, the size difference is really obvious. Most people will find the size difference difficult to see. Some people who have good visual acuity will, will be able to see it quite nicely. But why not try, go outside, have a look. It'll be a really nice moon no matter what. Went off a bit about the strawberry blood supermoon uh, last month. But uh, if you're interested, this moon is a hungry ghost moon, if you go by the Chinese moon name, or a black trevally moon, if you go by Papua Guinea moon names, or a mead moon, if you were uh, a traveller in uh, medieval England. So whatever name you like to call this perigee syzygy moon, it'll still be a very, very nice one. Excellent. And next we will actually have some meteors this year. 
it's the southern delta aquarids. Southern delta aquarids are a good southern hemisphere shower. We uh, tend to uh, not get the best of the northern hemisphere showers. We have a couple of southern hemisphere showers, which are quite nice. And the southern delta aquarids is one of them. The eater aquarids are the best southern, uh, southern shower. But the southern delta aquarians are really quite nice too. You know, they run from the 12th of July to the 23rd of August, but they peak on Sunday, July the 30th. So it's a nice time to get up early on Sunday morning or late Saturday night and watch speed yours more comfortably than many of the other showers we have to get up about three o'clock in the morning. The rate for the southern delta aquarians has a zenith horizon rate of 25 meteors per hour. But in fact, you're never going to see that many as the radiant will actually be some distance below the zenith. And also, unless you're out deep in the countryside, the darkness is going to be less than ideal. So this shower is fairly faint, and uh, we should be seeing a uh, rate of meteors about one meteor every four to five minutes. Uh, it's a new moon around this time, uh, so uh, it will be uh, we'll have good darkness. And it's best seen from about midnight to 3am. You can start watching as early as 11 o'clock if you um, feel like it. The uh, radiant will be relatively easy to find because it's about a hand span below Saturn in the northeastern sky. And Saturn and Jupiter, which is readily visible and will be uh, able to be seen uh, around about midnight above the horizon, gives you a very good spot to look as you, as you can sweep your eye anywhere uh, to the north and south of that zone defined by uh, Saturn and Jupiter and up a bit. So you can capture as many meteors as possible. Very good, Ian. And for those that are disinclined to get up early in the morning in winter, is there anything in the evening sky that people should look out for in midwinter? No, nothing in particular apart from the Perigee Sistie Moon. Most of the things are happening in the morning. Of course, the stars will be absolutely beautiful. For example, Scorpius is an excellent binocular hunting round now. It'll be uh, very high in the, uh, the sky, very easy to see from uh, astronomical twilight. That's an hour and a half after sunset. And what's really, uh, for example, what's really nice is where, where you see the sting of the tail that begins to bend around, there's a star group being uh, dominated by Zeta-1 and uh, 2 Scorpio, and this is called the False Comet. Uh, and just below the end of the sting is Ptolemy's cluster and the butterfly cluster. And that's really nice. And Sagittarius is becoming uh, more prominent too. You should be able to easily see the teapot of Sagittarius below that. This is where the center of the galaxy is, and this is generally called the uh, months of July, August, is um, a galaxy season because the heart of the galaxy is easily visible uh, in, in the dark. And if you're somewhere dark, you'll be able to see the excellent dust lanes. Um, and I've, I've, I've already uh, waxed poetic about the emu, where the dust lanes that run from the coal sack just below the Southern Cross run down uh, forming the neck of the emu and then you below that curl of Scorpius is far more dust clouds you can see forming uh, around the centre of the galaxy. If you get binoculars and start moving down from 
the curl of, the, of that tail, uh, and again, just below that sting, you see Ptolemy's cluster in the butterfly cluster very easily. If you head down below that, you'll also see the Trifid Nebula and the Lagoon Nebula as you head towards the teapot of Sagittarius. So there's lots and lots of cool things that you can see. If you're moving across to the southern skies, you'll be able to see the Southern Cross quite easily. The Southern Cross is quite high now. And to a, a bit of, of uh, right and a bit below uh, Alpha Crucis, the brightest star of the cross, and halfway between the Southern Cross and the False Cross, if you move up from the Southern Cross, you'll see what looks to be another cross. That's called the False Cross. Halfway between that is Theta Carina, the brightest star in the Southern Pleiades, and you should be able to see, if you've got good eyesight, the triangle-shaped group of stars around Theta Carina, and it looks really, really nice in binoculars too. And just above, this is a broad fuzzy patch that is the Carina Nebula. If you have dark skies, you'll be able to see the, this nebulosity. You won't be able to see either Carina, it's too dim to see. But across this nebulosity is a dark band, and this is called the Keyhole Nebula. And it's best seen with binoculars and a, a small telescope. But again, of course, I always point to the Omega Centauri. It's a magnificent globular cluster. Really easy to find in the evening, forming a triangle with the Southern Cross and the pointers. But for our Northern Hemisphere viewers or listeners, or those of you who are staring intently at your computer, it's galaxy season where we also have the Andromeda Nebula easily visible. So if you're looking north, you can see the Andromeda Nebula, which is our closest galaxy, quite easily. So for us in the Southern Hemisphere, it's a lot harder to see. So for you in the Northern Hemisphere, it's a much easier to see, see the, um, Andromeda, the Andromeda galaxy through binoculars. It's, well, it's easy to see as a large fuzzy patch, but you need to have a telescope to really bring out the, the galaxiness of it all. Very good, Ian. And do you have a tangent for us for this month, then? Oh, yes, do I have a tangent for you. Now, last month, I um, got grumpy about naming of names yep. and with the supermoons and things. But uh, shortly after that, there was a, a, a thread about moon on Twitter where they talked about the moon being a green cheese and also inspired by the famous XKCD mole of moles discussion, I thought I'd like to address what it'd be like if the moon was made of green cheese. Now, green cheese is not actually green. The popular misconception is that green cheese is green. Uh, however, green cheese is an unripe cheese, like a, a green apple or a, uh, or a green fruit generally. The whitish bloom of mold on an unripe cheese reminded people of the colour of the moon. So what would happen if we had a moon made of cheese? Well, first, how do we get a moon made of cheese in the first place? We could build one. Uh, however, the annual production of cheese worldwide is something like 22 by 10 to the power of 9 kilograms. Uh, and the moon weighs uh, around about 7 by 10 to the power of 22 kilograms. So constructing the moon from cheese would take about a trillion years, and the sun would have gone red giant long before this. <laughs> so we're, we're not going to find um, what a, a, a cheese moon would really look like. 
So let's just assume that the cheese moon appears by magic or quantum tunneling from the cheese dimension. And so for the purposes, I'm going to choose the, assume the cheese is camembert because there's lots of good information on the density uh, and thermal conductivity of camembert. Uh, and the rind is reminiscent of the moon. And let's further assume that the Kamen moon is the same cheese, is, is the same mass of cheese as boring moon. So it's uh, 7.35 by 10 to the power of 22 kilograms. Uh, now it matters a lot if it's generated by roughly 10 to the power of 23 individual one kilogram rounds of camembert or one solid sphere of cheese. But I'm going to elide over that because that involves um, some uh, discussion of accretion and which I'm poorly place to discuss. So the first thing we do, I'm also going to assume for the purposes that boring moon just vanishes, uh, is replaced by Kamen moon, and that it's also in orbit around the Earth in the same orbit and, and not going to do horrible things like crash into us. But the, then the first thing we notice is that Kamen moon is much bigger. The density of camembert is 1.04 grams per centi cubic centimetre while the moon is much uh, denser at 3.346 grams per cubic centimetre. That means that the starting radius of Cannon moon is roughly three times that of our, our moon. It's also much, much brighter. The moon is very dark, reflecting only 12% of the light forming, falling on it. Uh, Cannon moon would be reflecting somewhere on the order of 50 to 60% of the moon. Uh, there isn't... Uh, depending on whether you're the, we're seeing just white rind or a combination of rind and subsurface cheese. Uh, this is, a, again, a much more complicated discussion, which we'll have to talk about later. So the, and so the, the cabin moon would be blindingly bright. If you think it would be uh, uh, bigger in the sky and much, much brighter. So the nights would be very, very bright indeed with the Kamen moon. The other thing we would notice is the Kamen moon would start shrinking. We probably need a telescope to see, to see the shrinking. Uh, now, Camembert is a highly compressible cheese under force, compressing to up to 80% of its original height under even modest force. So you only need about 1.1 uh, of a kilogram of force to squish it down to 80% of its starting radius. Now, if you have something with a radius of uh, thousands of kilometres, uh, even one kilometre down, cheese even one kilometre now will start getting compressed very highly. So, but uh, 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 however, the, the, the top layers of cheese won't compress as much as the inner layers of cheese. So, uh, a, a rough rule of thumb, is the Cannon Moon will probably end up about 80% of its starting radius. It'll still be about uh, two times bigger or uh, in diameter than the boring moon. But, uh, and again, also, the, the compression isn't just going to happen overnight. It will continue to happen. Uh, it'll probably be very fast in the first century or so and then uh, keep on going over geological time periods. As, as um, the, the Cameron moon shrinks, uh, as it compresses, the surface will crack and buckle. But because camembert flows easily, the ridges, rills, and uh, mounds formed by this process won't get particularly high or last very long. Now, both the Earth and boring moon get hotter the further you go below the surface. 
and Earth has a molten core, and the Moon probably has a semi-molten core. This heat is a combination of multiple things. It's a leftover heat from accretion when tiny planetesimals slammed into each other, forming a molten ball. The radioactive decay of the various elements uh, from a primordial cloud and gravitational compression. Uh, for a planet like the Earth, which is fairly rigid, gravitational compression is basically negligible. And the heat that we have is left over from, mostly left over from accretion and radioactive decay. Now we've magically brought in the Cannon Moon, so we've got no heat from accretion, unless of course we uh, magic in 10 to the power of 23 uh, individual Cannon Bears, which then collide to form the Cannon Moon. And the radioactive decay from the potassium within the Cannon Bear will be negligible over our observed timescales. Uh, over geological timescales, radioactive potassium disintegration may add a decent amount of heat to the core of the Cannon Moon. But uh, in, for our uh, period of time, which is the first century or so of observing the, the Cannon Moon from the surface of the Earth, uh, it won't be a, a, a big uh, contributor. So the only heating will be from compression. With my exception, I'll talk about that shortly. So working out the actual degree of heating from compression is tricky, as I need to know how fast the cannon will compress. And of course, that will change over time, and it gets messy. But um, at least based on what we know from planets like Jupiter and Saturn, uh, under reasonable assumption, it's likely the core would be hot. Not necessarily as hot as our boring moon, which is somewhere between 1300 and 1400 degrees uh, centigrade. But as cheese starts melting at about 32 degrees centigrade and is melted at 60 degrees centigrade for Cannon Bear, we can safely say that the core of Cannon Moon is molten. Now, Cannon Bear is roughly 50% water, 22% protein, and 23% fat. And as you heat it up and melt it, the water will uh, get separated out, as will the fat. And uh, you will also notice that when you melt a cheese, it's quite runny. Now, geologically speaking, uh, the upper layers of the, of the Cannon Moon will also be quite viscous and elastic too. So they'll all flow relatively easily compared to uh, the rocks of Boring Moon or the rocks of Earth. So in geological time, so soon geologically speaking, plumes of hot molten cheese water and fat will begin to make their way to the surface. So eventually the water will break through and we should see Enceladus-style geysers of water and possibly fat blasting into the Cameroonian sky. However, well before that, what happens will depend if the Cameroon moon is rotating when it came into being or if it's tidally locked with Earth. If it's latter, the surface of the Cameroon moon will become very hot. Uh, during the Cameroon lunar daytime, it get up to 120 degrees C, which is well above the temperature required to melt cannon bear. And again, the melt molten cheese will separate with water vapor being driven off and lakes of liquid fat forming, as anyone who's ever uh, watched um, cheese swelter in the, uh, in the heat on, the, on your uh, bench or uh, tried to reheat pizza will notice. So the, the Cameroon moon may require a thin steam atmosphere freezing out during the Cameron lunar nighttime, and you may end up having lakes of liquid fat forming 
on the crinkled surface of the chamomile. So, so initially we'll have this sort of uh, thin atmosphere of, of water, uh, interesting fat lakes. And then later on, we'll have uh, the deep water will break to the surface and generate in the geysers. So the Cavern Moon will be much more spectacular sight with Boring Moon, far more brilliant, rimmed with a thin atmosphere and great luminous geysers bursting from the surface. It'll also produce longer and deeper eclipses, but because it's no longer fits neatly into the same diameter as uh, the sun, you won't see the, the, uh, the brilliant uh, ring of uh, corona around uh, the Cannon Moon. You will see corona at the beginning and the end of the eclipses with Cannon Moon, uh, which would be interesting because if it has this thin water atmosphere, uh, and these geysers, which are backlit by the sun, will make a truly spectacular sight. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. The message is get out there, especially in the mornings, and look up, and there's lots to see. There is lots to see, but unfortunately, not a common moon blasting geysers of fat into the sky. Thanks, Ian. Yeah, I really enjoyed that uh, that tangent. It was just that just something clicked in my brain, and I had to I had to write out what would happen. Uh, although the working out the gravitational uh, heating of the moon turned out to be too much for my um, my mathematical ability. And a good story for cheese lovers and. Another good film for cheese lovers that links cheese and the moon is a film. It's a comedy, a bit of science fiction. It's called A Grand Day Out. And it's Wallace, it is indeed. Wallace and Gromit. And Wallace and Gromit, they run out of cheese and they go for a bit of an excursion up to the moon to collect some more cheese. It's very funny. It's one of, one of my favourite um, animations. I love that one. Okay. Good night, Ian. Good night, Brendan. Okay, you have uh, a, a great uh, July ahead of you. Have, see lots of sky and uh, have fun recording your wildlife. See lots of sky and enjoy July. Indeed. Thanks, Ian. Look up and have fun. You too, mate. You too. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free and unsponsored. But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to Rami Mandau at spaceaustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. We'll see you in two weeks when we're going to hear all about the cosmic web from an amazing astrophysicist, Dr. Sophie Gallego from Chile. Radio Wave.